it's not always fault of the institutions or companies that are also creating those spaces too. There's so many regulations, zoning restrictions, building code restrictions that are not written out in mind of such communities. So discrimination is embedded in our uh, regulation, in zoning resolution. And that system is designed to exclude Welcome to another episode of Design Lab. I'm your host, Bon Koo. On this show, we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Today's guest is Panara Govinch. She is a partner of Sour. It's an international award-winning architecture and design studio with a mission to address social and urban problems. She manages the business operations and leads the strategic planning, research, and partnerships of the studio. Prior to Sour, Panara co-founded Ventures, helping set up company infrastructure and helping them achieve international recognition and awards. She is also a part-time faculty at Parsons School of Design in New York City, School of Design Strategies, and serves on the board of directors of Open Style Lab. It's a nonprofit organization that makes style accessible to people of all abilities. I'm a huge fan of Open Style Lab. Pinar is a frequent public speaker and a guest lecturer and has a podcast called What's Wrong With It. On that podcast, she has discussions with progress makers and experts to diagnose real problems, ideate solutions, and raise awareness to the general public. You definitely want to check it out. As a reminder, you as a listener can support this show. It's so simple to do. All you have to do is go to Apple Podcasts Give us five stars and even better, leave us a comment and you could follow us on whatever platform you use to consume podcasts. We love it when we hear from you on social media. Reach out to me on Twitter and Instagram. My Twitter handle is at B-U-N-K-U. My Instagram is at D-R-B-U-N-K-U. When I'm not hosting this podcast, sometimes I'm a guest on other podcasts. I was delighted to be a guest on a Sherpa's Guide to Innovation that's hosted by Jay and Ben. They're really cool dudes. I loved being on the show. You might want to check it out. Again, it's called A Sherpa's Guide to Innovation. Now here's my conversation with Panar Govinch. Panar Govinch, welcome to Design Lab. Thank you so much for having me. You're based in uh, Brooklyn, New York, and you are a partner at an architecture studio with the coolest name called Sour. I love that. <laughs> and the mission statement is to address social and urban issues, which I think is super cool. Can you tell us what Sour is and how you got into it? Sure. Um, so I guess we're a very hybrid design studio. And as you said, with the mission of addressing social and urban problems, and we are a lean team with a big mission. So we recognize how hard it is to achieve that. So therefore that comes with a lot of collaboration, international and diverse collaboration, as well as being very research inspired. So I think when we talk about social and urban problems, we already need to assume that we're doing that with inclusive and sustainable methodologies in mind. Uh, if we do not necessarily have an inclusive approach, it's not long-term. If we don't do it sustainably, we have already seen that we're hurting 
others and the planet. And therefore, none of them, like not incorporating such methodologies, do not result in long-term solutions and therefore are not sustainable. So I think that is kind of embedded already through our process. Mm -hmm. Um, And because we are mission-led, that kind of helps us approach our projects in terms of more design solutions. So if we have a client brief, we like to ideate further on the brief with the client or challenge the brief and not to really narrow ourselves in the initial design solution in mind, but maybe also explore in other areas. If we do, we sometimes incubate concepts ourselves and launch projects ourselves. In that case, sometimes we don't even know what the end result is going to be. Is it an urban intervention? Is it a product design? Is it an experience design? So that's why um, we have projects in many different disciplines because the, the design... There's so many different disciplines. I was looking at the website and you just don't design buildings. You do yeah. everything from products, experiences, maybe services as, as well. And, yeah. and I found it so cool that you actually do research. So, you know, I, I'm a physician, but I have a lab and I, I'm an academic, so I, I do a lot of research. And why do you do research? How is that research funded? And is that unusual for an architecture design studio to take on research projects? I mean, I feel like in the way research is perceived in the field of architecture or other design, there's always some research, but what do we really mean by research, Mm -hmm. right? I I think we're very big on diverse research and diverse research methodologies, really, to really be able to have an inclusive research process that could really inform the design. And that's why I think we sometimes joke around saying like a sour also leads to like sourdough making. And so like we like Love to take sourdough. our time, <laughs> <laughs> which was like the hit in like pandemic time too. I feel like my but, sourdough you know. is terrible. I tried multiple times. <laughs> it never turns out good. Oh no, but it's the process, right? Like you take your time, make it, there needs to be some like reactions happening for that to like come into life. And We see research like that too, a little bit. Like we enjoy taking time and synthesizing what we researched on. And I think what we also see the biggest difficulty in brands, let's say, or companies or fields is to really, first of all, have insights that are really reflective of all stakeholders' interests, right? And then jumping to a proper design brief from those insights. So I think that's why like, sort of really working that muscle of research and synthesis is so crucial in order to get better in coming up with design solutions or like design framework really from that research that is inclusive and sustainable. So that's why I think it's crucial for a design studio to master that. And it takes a village. That's why it's very important to understand that we can't work without a diverse collaboration. Before I jump into some of the cool projects that Sour is and has worked on, I want to talk about your journey, design journey into Sour because it's a circuitous oh, wow. one, right? So you were born in California, but then you grew up in Turkey and there you studied industrial engineering in university yeah. and you actually enrolled in business school at Columbia in New York City yeah. at one point. Yeah. And, but you ended up getting a master's in business. So 
you're not formally trained as like a, a regular architect to design buildings. So nope. how did you get into this sort of work, which I found super fascinating? I think my first introduction to kind of maybe a design world, let, let's say, was I co-founded an e-commerce in furniture. It was called New York Functional Furniture, and we were designing like functional furniture for urban environments. But wait, was, what does that mean, functional furniture? Isn't all furniture functional? Well, you can imagine more like multifunctional. So imagine an ottoman converting into a one-person bed or, yeah. So like anything that has like multi-purpose that can come in very valuable in tight spaces like New York City. Got right? it. Okay. So and we actually, we launched as NYFU and I feel like how I had <laughs> That is a great name. NYFU. Amazing. Yeah. So it was like an FU attitude to like Ikea. I don't know. Like we were, <laughs> I was like 23 at the time. It's like the. It was really cool. I mean, we became successful fast. We opened up our first showroom in Chelsea. And then when it got acquired, I then joined Sarah as a partner. But how I got into the e-commerce was more like as I was bringing in my industrial engineering side, actually. Like mm. I helped set up the infrastructure, the supply chain, logistics, so more like business operations. And then uh, when I joined Sour, I thought like, okay, I'm going to also be like the business partner here. And then what I realized, all life experiences and my background is kind of like, I started to see I morphed into this position in like design strategy as well. Having seen the big picture in uh, both my like educational background and business experience before, it really helped me become a strategist. So I started to come into the projects more around design strategy as well. And really, can, part I pause, can I interrupt? And there are a lot of designers who listen to this show, but there's a lot of medical people with no design background. So, what is design strategy? How would you define that? So, I think everything we see around us is design, right? From systems to experiences to products to everything is actually a design. And we also see a lot of meaningless design out there that like you question why does this have to exist or, or we created this it created a new problem did we even have to have that from the beginning so there kind of needs to be like this multi-layered thinking around design how are we doing this why are we doing this what is what are the means of realizing this how are we gonna prototype this how are we gonna so it's kind of like developing the strategic roadmap in the design journey and my collective experience really helped me in becoming that in our team. I love what you said about everything is design and there needs to be a strategy around that. People don't realize everything in healthcare is designed. Like we need design oh, strategists in healthcare. We have all those things. We have services, we have products, we have experiences, but there is no over all design strategy around how healthcare is delivered. It's so fragmented. Yeah. I think that's and why a lot of patients, we feel so fragmented when we yeah. enter that system. It's so, it's like being on a roller coaster ride sometimes. Yeah. And it's kind of what we see over and over again. And sometimes I give an analogy of like the healthcare industry too, when we're talking about like how we go in the wrong direction just because our priority is to become more efficient or standardized. And most of that 
really results in poor experiences, right? And maybe those experiences are better if you have more money, like in the United States. But for many of the communities, the systems are not necessarily, or the service is not necessarily designed inclusive of their needs. And we already are, because we're trying to scale healthcare, we're already at a stage where we don't necessarily spend a lot of time with the patient. So that is already creating a lot of problems on its own. But we're also not we're not able to innovate or really problem solve within the system too, because we don't design with the actual stakeholders. So I think that's one of the biggest problems in the industry, that there's a lot of for mentality and not with mentality. And this is so important in your studio about inclusive design. And can you define what inclusive design is? Because I think we're talking about that right now, correct? Yeah. Well, first of all, inclusive design is better design. Let's just start with that. So basically, inclusive design is co-designing with the community that you're technically designing for, right? So it is a process inclusive of the people that you're really doing this for. So I think the traditional means of research and designing for end user, audience, customer, client, patient, whatever we want to call, is like we do focus groups, we ask questions, and then we go about our way, do a bunch of stuff, come back, ask what they think. Oh, maybe it's too late to change anything. And then we launch anyway. And then maybe we get like surveys on how might we make this better? And we respond 50% of the time because it's already like too far in. Like it's very... It is not inclusive. And we generally- It's terrible. I, I hate it. I hate these focus groups, <laughs> these yeah. surveys and those, but those are the methods that we use. So are there different methods that you use to include, let's say patients in part of the design process for healthcare services or products? Yeah. So this is like, I think, designers for a long time had the mindset of like experts, right? We're the experts. We'll ask you, but we'll decide on the end result. Co-design utilizes participatory tools, meaning you actually do every step together. So we, in our projects, we create what we call a co-creation panel. That is a diverse group of 10 to 12 people from the community. And we engage them very early on in research. And they're part of the process throughout, compensated like designers, and we just work together throughout the process. So, and the myth around it, this is, maybe it's like, oh, it will cost more. What would legal say? Like, there are so many concerns around it. But if you think about it, you're already 50% ahead of the game because you have such strong insights that are fresh right from the community. You don't bring in your own bias or position as a designer at any stage because you constantly check yourself by being with the community at all times in the process. And therefore, their insights don't get diluted when being transferred into a design framework. And then you actually have a design brief that really addresses the problem. And therefore, you have a much more successful project as an outcome. So all the costs, that have to appear after because you did it wrong or uh, in an insufficient way, you already mitigate for that when you do a co-creative process. 
So we, I love I that. Think that's like a, if, you know, I'm a physician. So if it, it would be like, if we were designing a new urgent care center of not just doing a focus group, but actually inviting patients, uh, caregivers into the process 100%. and designing with them of what that urgent care center might look like, what services are offered, what the experience would look like, everything from the waiting room to the patient portal. Is that what you're saying? To get them that engaged? Yeah, everything like the spatial design, the experience design, what type of digital tools they should be using, the journey to the urgent care itself. Like, is there any way like we could account for that to account for the interior design as well? So wayfinding, so many things. It, it blows my mind when I like hear about, you know. Tell what, us why healthcare sucks from a design perspective. <laughs> I, I, I was just like reading this a while ago where I think I'm forgetting which hospital this was. Maybe, I mean, we're also like not shaming them right now. Maybe it's a good thing, but. Hey, we could look so, it up. I could do a Google search right now. So <laughs> nurses had to do this like ridiculous amount of like walking during the day because the space was designed with zero understanding of a nurse's daily journey. Like, how do you even like talk about interior design without, without understanding what the staff of your client is experiencing in a day? Like, it's mind blowing to me, but that's not enough. It, it Like what? Engaging their feedback is also not enough. You also need to engage the patient's feedback. And that patient's like, who are we talking about? Is it a 75-year-old uh, person who has difficulty in moving around? Is it a person with a disability? Do we have children on the floor? Like, even when we say patient, who are those patients, right? So there has to be also diversity among uh, the stakeholder groups we're talking about, but you have to design with all stakeholders if you really want to have a successful outcome. Yeah, it can't be a 70 kilogram white male as your only stakeholder. Did you know that I had no idea about this? It is so fascinating. You know how like we're always freezing in like supermarkets, libraries, uh, schools. So apparently that temperature was defined, assuming that, I don't know, maybe a 30 year old a white male working in an industrial setup. So we carried on that standard into everywhere that we're sitting. We have a diverse group in there now, but we're still all freezing because we did not change that. <laughs> benefits me, but doesn't benefit half the population there. Oh, no. Can you talk about a, a product or service or experience that Sour has worked on? It doesn't have to be health-related where implementing this principle of inclusive design led to better design? Yeah. I mean, I guess I can give an example in personal care and that can tie into health a little bit too. So recently we worked with Unilever um, in and Winderman Thompson and the brief to us that we want to create a deodorant bottle that is accessible for people with disabilities. And like, like a deodorant stick that I need to use yeah. multiple times a day because I smell yeah. so much. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And it's the motion that an able-bodied individual can take it for granted, right? However, it's inaccessible to so many people. And also think about somebody who's like post-surgery mm. and has like limited range of motion. Think about elders. And so there is already so many things about a deodorant bottle is very inaccessible. You can't hold it. You can't necessarily twist open. You can't apply. So obviously it's a, 
like challenge that's very in line with our um, mission. So we first, and we need to understand that inclusive design is not universal design, right? We really need to understand who our users are to be able to address their needs. So we defined the community as people with upper extremity impairments. So may have paralysis in the arms, low dexterity, limited range of motion. Who might have had a stroke and can't use their right arm, exactly. for example. Exactly, exactly. Or maybe it has only one arm, right? So there so maybe it's an amputee and visual impairment. So based on that, we created a um, co-creation panel of diverse individuals with varying disabilities. For example, Christina Mellon, who co-designed on the project, her both arms are paralyzed. So she actually uses a lot of things with her feet. We had one person who has like very limited dexterity. One very good dexterity, but was legally blind. With that, I think we started exploration and really understood, well, understood what the needs and wants are of the community. And then we went on to ideation together. We started to ideate on features, what type of features we might need to incorporate. And we then from that landed on several like 3D models. Some were like more hack, hack idea. Like, can we actually go and hack an existing model out there? Or does it have to be a redesign? And to be able to like have that conversation accessible to everyone, we, um, 3D printed these outcomes as co-ideated on those. We brought in an occupational therapist to facilitate the sessions because we wanted someone who could actually understand the feedback that they're giving because they would have a better understanding on disability implications. So inclusive design often sometimes means for us to just get out of the way and have the right people to be in the conversation. So yeah, so we basically did that for several months. And in several months, we already had a very strong winning concept because, and which is a record timeline, I feel like for a brand, just because we co-created with the community. And it's won some impressive awards, right? Yeah. And awards help in the way that it also incentivizes the rest of the industry to go there. So we are definitely working on many other personal care projects right now. How did you respond to the client if they said, well, this sounds like a lot of work. Can't we just do a focus group and do a survey? Like, why do we need to invite all these different stakeholders, diverse stakeholders? And that's a lot of time. That's a lot of money. You're, you're paying them as you would a designer. That's a little bit crazy. It's just definitely not industry standard, right? I feel like I have to give credit here to the brand itself and also the creative agency. Winderman Thompson, like being a creative agency, works with many brands and sees a lot of like sales campaigns and know they know why, right? So, so they already came in with the understanding that if we don't do this in an authentic manner, it's going to fail. And there are definitely brand experiences on trying something new and it failed and was perceived very badly from a community, right? Just because they haven't co-created before. So there was already that learning curve. And uh, that's why when we proposed this process, they were very open to it because of that learning curve, I guess. But I still need to applaud for the client in terms of like, it's the first ever product designed like this. And it's for a company that has been around for like many years, it is very risky. Like a startup can launch something new, right? 
but it, it was a very risky move on their end and it was perceived very well. So that meant a great example for the rest of the industry to take part in such things. So with such product projects, like, and the frequency of them increasing, I'm hoping that's going to be the norm of the way we design. Love it. You said inclusive design is better design, and that's a great example of it. It's it's won multiple exactly. awards, so fantastic. Are you, is Sour working on any currently working on any health related products or services, or can you describe some you've done in the past? So yeah, there is definitely a certain an exploration stage project we have around childbirth centers. A topic also we feel very passionate about as there is so much, I guess, inequity in really having a healthy maternity and childbirth in the United States. And given that we are a developed country, our, the stats of the country compared to Europe is uh, in a terrible shape. It's terrible. We, we had a guest on before, Neil Shaw, who's an OBGYN, and talked about the maternal mortality and it's especially insane. in black and brown communities, it's astronomical. I just could not believe it. So, so, so happy that you're working on a project like this. It's, I, I, it's definitely an area that we have to innovate on, like yesterday. So it's definitely a passion project in that sense. It's so amazing to see the amount of conversation around mental health. And I guess that was like one of the silver linings of last year that it became okay to talk about it more. So we are very mindful of that aspect when it comes to interior spaces. And we believe in environmental psychology and that really needs to be taken account. If, it, if last year wasn't a proof of that, I don't know what is, like people going crazy at their homes. So, so we are actually working on an office project, engaging environmental psychologists and psychologists to really think about like mental health for employees too. And this also encompasses some things around like all the plastic partitioning and masks, like seeing that also is like reliving trauma of last year, right? So how do we get around that while still being, still protecting ourselves and being cautious? So there is definitely a great design challenge there that we're working on. As I said, there's a lot about around personal care, thanks to the degree project that really encouraged the industry to take on more. So we are working on many different forms of, I guess you can think about like skincare, hair care, oral care in terms of inclusion and accessibility in different ways. And it's, it is interesting. And I tie it more and more to health because in the co-creations we see like the psychological impact of the ability in doing something and inability of not being able to do something and how having greater independence affects your psychology. And we see this in elder communities too, and with people with disabilities. So that's why we believe accessibility projects really tie into health just because it allows for greater independence for individuals. That's so exciting. I wonder how many of these childbirth clinics are actually designed with people from that community, are they engaging with the 25-year-old single mom who's African-American? Probably not. 100% not. And not always, it's not always fault of the institutions or companies that are also creating those spaces too. There's so many regulations, zoning restrictions, building code restrictions that are not 
written out in mind of such community. So discrimination is embedded in our uh, regulation, in zoning resolution. And that system is designed to exclude. So like there are great advocacy groups like Every Mother Counts, for example, and they also talk about this problem a lot and they constantly try to work with community-based organizations to really be able to partner up in, you know, purposeful ways. But also they talk to brands and they talk to the government in many ways. But even they were saying like they have a lot of problem in innovating in the actual heights, the facility itself, and if the facility exists too in the first place. Some work has to be done, even like changing and redesigning the codes and the policies and the law. It is, I, I appreciate how the system is designed to fail. And I love what you're doing of like taking a step back and going, hey, what's wrong with this system? And how do we just not react, but how can we design a better system that wasn't designed to fail? Yeah, we actually do have a podcast called What's Wrong With. So Yeah, I wanna I wanna talk about that. I love Thanks that. Plugging uh, the, the podcast looks so cool. I have uh, listened to a couple. It's called What's Wrong With. And you it's so multidisciplinary. And did you do one on like what's wrong with help? So the podcast is our expert interviews, really. That has gone public. So we do oh, a lot get of out. So these are actually like experts that you had contact for projects. Yeah. So we are very, so there's no solution to any problem without the awareness of the collective public. So we're really big on trying to like share our research as well. So we decided we often have these like diagnostic ideation sessions on bigger subjects. Like if you've seen what's wrong with supply chains or what's wrong with tech. And I just so, want to pause. I love that term, <laughs> diagnostic ideation. That's, you know, being a physician, I, I love that. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, because we see the problems, but like most of the time we don't understand the underlying reasons of those problems, right? Like healthcare is expensive. Why? Right? Like, and when, once you start like digging in, so much comes up. We actually did what's wrong with health. I'll share it with you. It was fascinating to me for me to like discover, oh, wait, like insurance premiums really can't go down because there's so much on like the pharmaceutical side that they're all sort of like when you start digging into it, you understand why things recur much better. And so we decided, OK, those sessions will be a panel discussion and we'll make it open to public and our expert interviews why not convert them into a podcast? So not all of our expert interviews are there, but we try to share as much as possible. So that's why they're not really like formal podcast looking like conversations. They're just expert interviews. And that actually is a great example of like how we care genuinely about diverse perspectives in a project. That's why the topics really change a lot in those episodes. So I remember... A while back, like I think when we first started the podcast and architectural blog, I'm not going to give a name, reached out to a thing like, oh, like we really like the content you have on your podcast. Can you share the episodes to us that relates to architecture? And this is such a like frustrating point for me because everything relates to architecture. People exist in spaces, right? So like you have to have better understanding of people and their needs. If you want to create something meaningful in built environment or interiors. So, Such a narrow view of what architecture is. That has to change. 
that definitely has to change. That did not serve the industry well. Last year is a perfect example showing us how both environments can fail. So we really need to work more collaboratively and in a much more multidisciplinary way. And you had a cool podcast on what's wrong with supply chains recently. Uh, and we have all experienced supply chain disruptions, especially for us working in hospitals, a lack of PPE, a lack of basic medications like normal saline. Masks like her. Masks, yeah. Like some hospitals did not have all well, the, the N95 respirator masks was really lacking in a lot of hospitals. Fortunately, at my hospital, we we had a great supply chain, but that took the reason why we did is we were working on it for years beforehand. Mm. And we, you could not wow. hospitals could not react for Right. Supply chain disruption. You had to plan for years ahead of time. Right. And I was curious to know what some insight you had from that podcast of I, why are supply chains, why do, they're so fragile? I mean, I think it's, well, one of the biggest reasons of last year, especially, was that the United States government apparently acts like a startup and built their entire supply chain relying on one country and one economy. So guess what? If that country shuts down for any reason, you no longer have products. Wait, and what then, do you mean? Like what? So like the healthcare industry and so many other industries, majority of the supply chain is created in China, right? But this is like government level. Like I can see like a company set up their like infrastructure there, but also federal system rely on supply chain that is provided from China. So when you have a health crisis in China and factories start shutting down, suddenly an entire country is like short on supply, even on toilet paper, right? Like diapers, so many things. And that shows you that sort of like economic interest there inhibited any like resiliency or mm. responsiveness in a crisis like this. So we, and then there's like more demand. Everybody's competing for this uh, limited amount of supply. So prices go up and you have governmental institutions bidding against each other. It's insane. So if a startup does this at fails, like you can understand <laughs> they're a company, like they try to make some profit and but like on a government, like on a nationwide level, it's kind of like, well, maybe guys, we should like rethink our supply chain. Yeah. I remember even before the pandemic, salt water, normal saline bags, we had one, one major, I think, factory in Puerto Rico that was supplying every hospital in America, normal saline. And when the hurricane hit, that supply chain was disrupted. So we were lacking like we were struggling to find salt water. I mean, this is crazy. This is not rocket science here. And yeah, because the- it's just setting so, up a resilient infrastructure. Yeah, it, the yeah. infrastructure is not resilient. It, it's very, it's not diverse enough. And no. it was, and we face this all the time. We still face this. I, I think my last question, we're running out of time here, would be how might we design a more healthier life? I mean, I think, again, like if we think about last year, I'm so glad we started to broaden what health means, right? Like we're talking about healthcare, like the importance of self-care and how that supports mental health. 
we are talking about our environments being inaccessible and that can lead to psychological effect that you actually are not responsible of, right? So we're talking about health in a much more broader means and really try to hear out people instead of try to diagnose like a symptom right away, right? Or undermine their experience. I think, I mean, I'm not, I didn't, I'm not, I don't want to say like we got there, but there's like a better, I feel like motion towards that. So I think if, when we talk about like, how might we design for healthier environments or living for everyone? Well, first of all, it has to start out with a much more diverse conversation around what our needs are, right? Like we really need to, whether those are like physical or mental, what do we really need? I think diseases happen, we suffer from things, accidents happen, things happen in our lives. How we experience or how our lives are after having something going on in your life or a life-changing event or maybe like even like having COVID, right? Like your experience throughout that and after design can really support that. Like we can't interfere with someone getting cancer, but we can rethink how a person from a marginalized community might get a cancer treatment and how might we support them in after the fact that one, hopefully they're, they're cancer free, how might we support them? Right. So I think there is like a much bigger conversation to have around what does health mean? to individuals and then how can design support in various stages of our lives too that would be a great course in medical school what does health mean we assume we know what health means as especially as doctors we're experts but often i find i don't understand what health means to this individual looks a lot different from uh, individual to individual community to community country to country And we don't understand the underlying reasons of why we see some of these health symptoms in some communities versus others, right? Like it, there's huge environmental factor there. There's cultural behaviors that inflict that. There is eating habits, poor access to like healthy food, infrastructure or vitamins, whatever you want to call it. And unfortunately, doctors don't have the time to really understand the context of their lives and really be able to look at something more holistically. And I feel like doctors need to be given more freedom and how they can practice. And I think, yeah, I love that. Like what's wrong with health? And if that's like an ideation session in like one class, you know, because what healthy life means for everyone can change a little bit too. I could talk with you all day. Some great <laughs> stuff here. We check did. out Benar's so podcast, What's Wrong With. Uh, check out her projects for her design and architecture studio, Sour. And thank you for being on, Benar. Thank you so much for having me. This was such a treat. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Pinar. You can find her on Instagram at P-I-N-A-R dot G-U-V-E-N-C. And you can reach out to me on Instagram. I can be found at D-R-B-O-N-K-U and on Twitter at B-O-N-K-U. Remember, please, please, please go to Apple Podcasts. 
give us five stars. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and cover design by Eden Liu. See you soon.